was going to look at the call of Ezekiel in chapters 1 to 3, but I'm just going to, I know we've prayed a bit, but pray and then we're going to open that and work our way through it. Father, thank you. We thank you for your word. It is indeed a light to our feet. It guides our path. It encourages us. And as we look at this passage and the call of Ezekiel, a prophet in a dark time, we ask that you would help us to understand what it might mean for us as we go forth with your word in the world we live in today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it was just over 30 years ago that Dina and I came back. We came back from the United States. We planted what uh, became Grace Bible Church. And I can tell you, as I think back over those 30 years, it was a very different world that we came back into. So if you had told me 30 years ago that uh, by 2024, we'd be ministering to a very different world, a world that's recovering after being divided over a virus or a world that's worried about war in Israel and Ukraine or arguing over which octogenarian might become president of the United States, I might have said, look, I didn't expect any of those things, but my training equipped me to deal with those things. But if you'd gone back to younger Craig 30 years ago and said, you know, you're going to be equipping your people to go out into a world with a very different mindset out there, that back then... I equipped our people to go out with apologetics and is there a God and talk about creation and so on. But now when our people go out there and they say, I'm a Christian, a lot of the people they talk to go, whoa, you're dangerous. We've heard about you guys. Do not want to talk to you. Now I can tell you that's something I never anticipated. I wouldn't have imagined that we'd live in this world that if you invite your neighbours over and then you go, can we pray? And they go, pray? What are you? I'm a Christian. They go, really? So I'm living next to one of these haters. You hate gays. You hate transgender. You're part of the racist patriarchy. You're on the wrong side of history and you want to pray. No thanks. I would never have imagined... In fact, it just never entered my consciousness that within my lifetime, we would be living in a world that glorifies same-sex marriage, encourages transgender feelings, and says, you can be anything you want. You choose whatever identity, and you just identify with it, and that is you. And so we somehow have been put on what the world says is the wrong side of history, the wrong side of justice. We do not love We do not believe in equality. We are to be feared because we are dangerous. Many of the people that I talk to even in our churches come and ask, Craig, are we on the wrong side of history? Have we got it wrong? And many say, I don't even actually want to invite my neighbour over. I don't even want to let the people I work with know I'm a Christian. Because I am worried that if I do, I'm going to be told I am bigoted, I'm racist, I'm homophobic, anti-science, anti-love, anti-equality, and that's all they're going to think of me. So 30 years ago, if you told me I was going to leave medicine to go into a ministry that's going to look like that, I would have said, I'm staying where I am. 
but I'm glad I didn't. So what wisdom does God have for you and for me today in the world we live in? Well, one of the places that I find great comfort is in the book of Ezekiel. Now, you may or may not know much about Ezekiel, but I'd encourage you to read this book and read it a lot. If you think you live in a tough time in history to minister in, think about Ezekiel. This man had what I think is probably the toughest ministry that you're going to find in the Bible. So if you've got your Bibles, have a look with me at Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning verses 1 to 3. Now, I never thought to ask Graham what Bible version, if you used one, so it may be the same or it may be a little different, but it should be close enough. Ezekiel 1, 1 to 3. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came directly to the priest Ezekiel, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal. The Lord's hand was on him there. Now, when it says the 30th year, this is the 30th year of Ezekiel. Basically, he turned 30. Ezekiel was of the priestly line, and when you turn 30, you become a priest and you begin ministering. Now, he's sitting by the Kabar Canal and he's thinking about his 30 years that he's been in that world and it had changed. Our world has changed in 30 years, nothing compared to Ezekiel's world. Ezekiel had been born during the reign of King Josiah, good king, and he'd instituted these sweeping reforms throughout Judah and spiritually it was doing well and it was a great time to be in ministry. They listened to Josiah, the priests read the word, they tore down the high places, it was a good time. But then Josiah was killed, tragically, and if you know anything of their history, there was this succession of more and more morally corrupt kings. Jehoiachin was so bad that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, this pagan said, You're so bad, we've got to deal with you. And in 598 BC, he took Jehoiachin and most of the royal family and 10,000 of the leading citizens of Judah and carted them off in a captivity in Babylon. And among them was a young man, 25 years old, called Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel opens five years later. Now, a bit more context. This opens seven years before Judah is finally destroyed. So at this point, Ezekiel's sitting by the Kabar River and he knows that Judah, well, the storm clouds are gathering. The prophets are saying it's going. It looks like it's going and it probably should go. It's becoming more and more morally bankrupt. And here he is in Babylon and he's looking around and the people in exile are going, this isn't so bad. We quite like it here in Babylon. And so he's thinking, and I'm supposed to go on a ministry, what hope do I have? I'm sure he's thinking, what do I do? Do I cave in and go into the idol-making business so at least I can support my family here? Or do I actually proclaim the word of the Lord? And it's at this very moment the Lord himself appears to Ezekiel. 
So here's what I want you to see in these first three chapters. He appears, and basically what the Lord says to him is this. Our task, and this is not just Ezekiel, this is you and I, is to take God's light into the darkness. God's task is to use that light to overcome the darkness. So our task is just to go out into the darkness with the light and leave it up to him. So Ezekiel was faced with an ocean of darkness and God appears and says, congratulations, you're not going to just be a priest, you're going to be a prophet. Now, if you know your Old Testament and God turns up and says, you're going to be a prophet, if you are wise, you would say, thank you, but no thank you. Send someone else. Prophets get a pretty hard life and most of them end up dead. So I'm sure he's thinking, you know, Shadrach. Shadrach would be a great one to call. Daniel. Now, Daniel is a very impressive young man. Make him your prophet. His second thought might have been, look, if you really have to make me a prophet, I need to be one like Elijah. I need these miracles. Have you met these Babylonians? I need to be able to call fire down from heaven. I need to be able to raise the dead before they're going to listen to me or even these morally bankrupt Jews. That's what I need. If you know anything about Ezekiel, he doesn't get anything. No miracles, no nothing. He doesn't even get a t- He's the one prophet that doesn't even get a sidekick to help him out. It's just him. But what God says is, here's what you get. You get, thus says the Lord. You get my word to take out there and you wait and see what it does. Now, I'm sure he's thinking, really? I've got to go into the Babylonians and to the Jews and say, thus says the Lord, they're going to kill me. Well, they might. You know, we think the same kinds of things. How do we go with a gospel that 2,000 years ago there was a carpenter who was crucified And he's the only hope for our world. How do we go into a world of social media and gender theory and relativism and say, this is the gospel? Surely we need a better plan than that. Well, Ezekiel didn't need a better plan. And you and I do not need a better plan. Ezekiel's task is to be faithful, to do what the Lord told him, and that's our task. So if you know this book... God says to Ezekiel, I'm going to win. It may not look like it, and there are going to be some tough times, but I'm going to win. I have a plan for my people, and nothing can stop it. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I are not called as prophets, but we are commissioned as servants of God, and we are given his word, and we are told to go out into our world, dark as it is, and take the truth there and be faithful. And I know, and I know full well that when we talk to people in our world about sin and judgment, it sounds incredibly medieval to them. And they're like, we don't even understand what you're saying. We don't even believe there is a God. Well, we need to keep going, and God will use his word. So here's God's plan to reach a lost world, and it has not changed. So three things. First thing, remember his glory. Remember his glory. We don't go alone. We go with the backing of God Almighty. 
This plan is not something that we hope might work. This plan is one that already succeeded. Before the foundation of the world, God planned everything out. We know how it ends. We've got the book of Revelation. We know how this ends. He's inviting us to be a part of it. So the question for Ezekiel is not, does this plan have a chance of success? The question is, are you going to be faithful and do your part in it? See, God plans win. There is no philosophy, no religion, no teaching, no movement out there that can overcome it. The world might look scary, but I can tell you when you read chapter 1, the God who sends us is scarier. So God says, remember who calls you. And if you understand Ezekiel, he says, I'm coming in judgment, but I am also the God who comes in salvation. And my people, I have a plan for them. So in chapter 1, verse 4, Ezekiel looks up and he sees what looks like this powerful storm. There's lightning, there's fire flashing forth, and it draws near. And Ezekiel realizes he is seeing something that he should not be able to see. God himself coming on this mobile throne chariot. Now we have pictures in this chapter where he tries to describe what he sees. The awe, the wonder, the power, the splendor. No metaphor goes close to it. But the idea is this God is the one who is sending you Ezekiel and it will not fail. Nebuchadnezzar, before God, he's just a dung, a grass-eating cow. Gender theory, the media, politicians, they are but grass-eating cows before this God. And Ezekiel, again, if you know anything about this book, whenever he's getting despondent, he gets these visions of this God who says, keep going, Ezekiel. Keep going. So look down at verses 25 to 27 of chapter 1. So he's in fear, he's trembling, and the one who's coming speaks to him. He sees this awesome figure, glowing metal, fire all around, this divine radiance, this vision of God. Now, if you know your Bible, you know it's very similar to a picture in Daniel. It's also very similar to a picture in Revelation 1. Now, Ezekiel is in no doubt who's drawn near to him, but here's what I want you to reflect on. If you read Ezekiel 1 and then later in your quiet time go and read Revelation 1, the descriptions are remarkably similar. See, Revelation describes the end of this, the return of Christ. And on that day, at the end of human history, God's coming back and everything he said is going to come to pass. Every eye will see him coming on the clouds And what he says will come to pass. Here's what you have to remember. Ezekiel has to remember it. You and I have to remember it. The lamb wins. The world doesn't win. Putin doesn't win. Satan doesn't win. Philosophies don't win. Mormonism doesn't win. The lamb wins. And those who are in him win. And so the only question throughout Ezekiel is, are you going to be faithful? And it's the question for us. Now, verse 28, there's too much for him. He falls flat on his face. He thinks, I have seen God, I have to die. But God hasn't come to kill him, but to commission him. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, get up. Got a job for you. Verse 2, as he spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I listened to the one who was speaking to me. He's filled with the spirit of God. 
Spirit of God opens his eyes to the reality of who God is and the task before him. Now, have you ever noticed that throughout the scripture, whenever God calls someone to take his message to the world, he shows them a glimpse of his glory, does it with Moses, Paul, so on. God wants these ones to know and he wants you and I to know his word is backed by him. You and I are commanded to take the gospel to the nations. We believe that. Matthew 28. We are to go and make disciples of the nations. But you might be sitting there going, hang on, well, I haven't had a vision like this to inspire me and encourage me to go out there. Well, I remind you what the New Testament in multiple places says. It says, as New Covenant believers, we have been given an even greater vision and glory to empower us, and you just celebrated it. It is the cross. That is our vision And that tells us we're on the right side of history. And the one who died there says, all authority is given unto me, now you go. So Ezekiel needs to understand Nebuchadnezzar looks incredibly powerful. The king of Judah looks incredibly weak as a corrupt puppet. The priests are morally bankrupt. What can he do? Well, it's not up to him. He's to be faithful, to share the word, and God's word will do its work. That's our task. Now, Ezekiel does feel outgunned. He's out of his depth. He wonders, are they actually going to turn from their sin? And the Lord says, you are to be faithful to share this. I'll deal with that. You know, brothers and sisters, many of us feel the same way Ezekiel felt. We're like, how can we go out there? How can we talk about a creator? How can we talk about the cross? How can we talk about right and wrong in a world that says there are no absolutes? How can we say there is a hell and that we all deserve to go there? They're just going to laugh at this. They're going to say to us, you know what? I hear your flat earth theology and I raise you my science. I win. And the reality is many Christians and many churches have caved because the gospel seems foolish. Well, to the world it is foolish, but to us it is the power of God for salvation. And you need to remember, we are on the right side of history and eternity. I keep getting asked this. We do Q&A sessions. I keep getting asked, look, you know, is is saying homosexual relations and same-sex marriage are not what God intends, is that the same thing as us being racist? Is holding to gender distinctions, is that a violation of human rights? Are we opposing human flourishing? Have we checked our minds at the door? And I want to say, the God who created this world said, my world, my rules, you just stick to them. Remember his glory. We're on the right side of history if we're on his side. It's the only message that can actually move men and women from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The second part to God's plan to reach a lost world. Not only do we remember his glory, we need to unleash his word. We've got to actually get his word out there. We've got to unleash it. When you read the armour of God in Ephesians 6... It is all defensive armour, except for one thing, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
Now, it does seem like a mismatch. We take our Bible out there and they've got university and professors and money and media and X, formerly known as Twitter or whatever it is now. They've got politicians, religion, Wall Street, and we got, thus says the Lord. Well, it is an unfair fight, but it's unfair to them. So Ezekiel's in exile and Judah is about to fall and God said, here's my strategy. You take the candle of my word, my truth out there. But it has always been this way. 700 years later, Jesus says to his men, the Great Commission, Acts 1-8, here's my strategy. You take the word of my gospel and you go. That's all you need. 500 years later, Rome has fallen and God says, here's my strategy, take the candle of my word and go. Another thousand years later, time of the Reformation, the Roman church has risen. The world's very different. God says, hasn't changed. Sola Scriptura, take my word and proclaim it. 2024, yeah, we got the age of the internet, AI, medicine, very different world. I want to tell you the strategy hasn't changed because God hasn't changed. Take my word, get out there, and share it. Now, I keep hearing, we need to change. We need a a few really prominent people. We need a tech tycoon. I keep getting told things like, you know, if only Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey would become Christians, the world would be reached. Hallelujah. We don't need them. And you know what? Even if that happened, who's going to get the glory? So God has the same strategy. Take my word. It's going to sound foolish. Leave it to me. It's not your skill as a debater or a public speaker or the force of your personality or how brilliant your arguments are. You go with the gospel and you make sure you get it right and God will work. God outlined all of this before there were any days. He chooses a strategy that seems impossible and when you read the book of Ezekiel, again and again, he says, I'll tell you why I do this, so I get the glory. So when this impossible comes to pass, everyone will know I get the glory. So Ezekiel, all you get is this one candle of the word, go out there. Paul, all you get is this one candle. Luther, All you get's this one candle. Thornlands, all you get's this one candle, the gospel. The power is in the word. Now, we see this in three sub-points. The first one is this, God's word authenticates. God's word authenticates. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. These are fascinating verses. He said to me, son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to the rebellious pagans who've rebelled against me. The Israelites and their ancestors have transgressed against me to this day. The descendants, their descendants are obstinate, hard-hearted. I'm sending you to them. And you must say to them, this is what the Lord says. Whether they listen or refuse to listen, for they're a rebellious house, they'll know that a prophet has been among them. What's fascinating? He says, I'm sending you to a group of rebellious pagans. Now, I can understand him saying rebellious, but pagan? Why pagan? Read on in Ezekiel. You get to chapter 8. And Ezekiel is taken in the spirit back to Jerusalem, back to the temple. 
And God says, I'm going to show you why I've got to wipe this whole place out. He's showing the temple. The priests have set up idols in the temple. It just blows his mind. It's like idols in the temple. He's showing the shrine within the temple. And the priests have set up all these deities to little insect gods, the shocking images, and they're bowing down. And we're told that the, uh, from the surrounding nations, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, and the priests are worshipping these bugs and animals. And they're saying, well, we're hidden. God doesn't know what's going on in here, so we're fine. And then he's showing a group of women weeping to Tammuz. Tammuz is a pagan fertility god, and it's ritual prostitution that's going on in the temple. And then finally he's showing this group of men in the temple as the sun rises, they're bowing down and worshipping the sun. Any kind of idolatry you can think of, it had got in at the heart, at the temple. And God says, Ezekiel, all you get to combat this is, thus says the Lord. What hope does that message have? God says, my word is self-authenticating. You get out there and you say it, and they're going to know that a prophet has been in their midst. Brothers and sisters, I hope you realise the church isn't doing so well in many places. Yesterday, I'm reading about a new book release, Holly's Hell. It's about a woman who'd spent seven years in a Thai prison for dealing drugs. But here's what got me. She was talking in there about her childhood and said, I grew up in a very strong Christian family who went to church each Sunday. But then in the next sense, she's like, her mum was very wealthy because she was a madam who ran a large escort agency and introduced her to drugs at a young age. And I'm thinking, well, you know, what, how do you reconcile this? I'm a strong Christian but it doesn't have to affect these parts of my life. I can be in very immoral sin. We see it in so many areas. We're becoming too much like the world. So we've got to get out there and say, God's not pleased, and here is the gospel, and we do not move from it. And when they hear it, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Second. God's word alienates. Look at verses 6 and 7. You son of man, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their words. Even though briars and thorns are beside you and you live among scorpions, don't be afraid of their words or discouraged by the look on their faces. They're a rebellious house. Speak my words to them, whether they listen or refuse to listen, for they're rebellious. Notice all the ways it goes. Whether they listen, whether they don't listen, you, your job's just to speak the words. You know, it'd be really nice... If you're a prophet and God says, look, you go with the truth, everyone's going to go, oh, and repent and revival's going to break out. Happens occasionally in history, very rarely. They hated Jesus. They crucified him. And Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. No one likes being told that you can't do what you want and you are sinful and God hates sin. And the re response to this truth is often br brutal. And right here, Ezekiel's told, you aren't going to have a great ministry in that sense. You're going to feel like you've landed among the thorns and the briars and the scorpions. It's going to be horrible. 
At this point, Ezekiel's got to be thinking, could you choose someone else? Is there an escape clause in this contract? I tell you, if it's not God calling him to do this, he would have walked away. And God's not sugarcoating what's going to lie ahead. He said, you're going to declare my word and they're going to respond viciously. Read this book. They hated his message. And he had to do really hard things. He has to build a model of the siege of Jerusalem, lie on his left side for 390 days, then lie on his right side for 40 days. And to picture the famine coming, he has to eat nothing but starvation rations cooked on dung. Later in this book, God takes his wife, she dies, and says, you can't mourn to show I'm going to take everything the nation views as precious. So there's decades of faithful preaching, and they hate him. They marginalise him. They call him the crazy prophet. Ezekiel, man, seen the stuff he does? Lunatic. Until later, they begin to say, we got it wrong. There was a prophet among us, and we should have listened. Unless God opens their eyes, the world are not going to bow the knee to Christ. But at times he does open their eyes, and they do bow the knee to Christ. We've got to get out there. One other point about the word, Ezekiel. God says, God's word orientates. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 8, to chapter 3, verse 3. And you, son of man, listen to what I tell you. Don't be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth, eat what I'm giving you. So I looked and saw a hand reaching out to me, and there was written a scroll in it. When he unrolled it before me, it was written on the front and back. Words of lamentation, mourning, and woe were written on it. And he said to me, son of man, eat what you find here. Eat the scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. Son of man, he said to me, feed your stomach, fill your belly with the scroll I'm giving you. What's going on here? He sees this scroll and it's got judgment, woes, lamentations on it. Now, the point is that it's not like you look a bit hungry, Ezekiel, you know, saute the scroll and eat it. This is a vision. He sees that it's written on both sides. Scrolls are usually only written on one side. It's written on both sides to show the fullness of this judgment that is coming. Now, eating the scroll means seeing judgment and woe from God's perspective. He internalises it, so he sees it from God's perspective. When we go and share the gospel, here's what I often hear, and I bet you you do too. What they hear are things like, oh, so you're telling me God loves you Christians and he hates the rest of us. You're telling me God forgives the hypocritical Christians who commit all sorts of sin just because they're his. But good Mormons, good Muslims, good atheists, good gays, who've often done many more good things than you Christians, they're going to burn in hell forever. I don't want a God like that. I will never worship a God like that. Sometimes we struggle with this. Sometimes we ask, what, doesn't God love homosexuals and Muslims too? Sometimes we really struggle with hell. I don't know about you, that is one thing that I do often struggle with. 
There are people that I've shared the gospel with that I love who have died and they have not repented and I believe that unfortunately they will suffer eternal conscious punishment in hell. I struggle with that. I weep at that. I wish it were not like that. At times, I can tell you, I've even thought, oh, is there a way to make universalism right? Is there a way to make annihilationism right? It's just, I don't like it. It seems so horrible. Until, until I begin to see things not from my perspective, but from God's perspective. Until I orientate myself and see things from the vantage point of the only one who is eternal and holy and just, and then it all changes. This is what Ezekiel has to do. Look at verse 3. So I ate it, and the scroll of judgment, it was bitter. No, that's not what it says. It was sweet. Sweet as honey in my mouth. Now, it's unexpected. He's reading this judgment that's coming on his people who he loves. When you read this book, he loves them. Why is it sweet? It's not that he found this particularly sweet from a human perspective. He sees it from God's side and says, this is right. This is the way it must be. Judgment glorifies God. There is no one good. Every single one of us have rebelled against the God of chapter 1, a holy God. We all deserve infinite punishment. All are lost. Punishment shows the glory of God and anything less diminishes the glory of God. Judgment, from God's perspective, is sweet. Now, it's hard for us to understand that because we've all got the nice aunt, the nice neighbour, the one who's always kind. You go there and they bake you the cookies and they go to the Uniting Church every Easter and every Christmas. And if you say to them, so, auntie, are you born again? And they look very quizzically and, like, I don't know what you're talking about. It is not that her being in hell is unfair. What is unfair, brothers and sisters, is that you and I, who do not deserve it, could ever get to heaven. What is also sweet is that our message is not just just judgment is coming. What is sweet in this book is there is a way to escape that judgment by repentance and trusting this God. I'll be honest. I think until I die and I get to glory, I'm always going to struggle with hell. But I believe it because the Bible tells me so. But I also know that one day I will know as God knows and I will see things from his perspective and it will be sweet. And everything in history will be sweet. God's truth ultimately prevails. In Revelation 18, John looks and he sees the fall of Babylon. He sees the fall of all the false religions, the false philosophies, the false teachings... And then in chapter 19, he says, what destroys them? He sees Christ, robe dipped in blood, and coming out from his mouth is the word of God, a sharp sword that destroys them. His word prevails. Third part of God's plan to reach the lost world. So we remember his glory, we unleash his word. Thirdly, be his watchman. Be his watchman. We are called to be watchmen. In chapter 3, God gives Ezekiel a job description. 
Now, I know we're not prophets, but I think in many ways this also applies to us. Have a look at verses 7 and 9. The house of Israel will not want to listen to you because they don't want to listen to me, for the whole house of Israel is hard-headed, hard-hearted. Look, I've made your face as hard as their faces, your forehead as hard as their foreheads. I've made your forehead like a diamond, harder than flint. Don't be afraid of them or discouraged by the look on their faces, though they are a rebellious house. Hey, I warn you, Ezekiel, they're not all going to fall down and repent. In fact, they're going to hate what you say, and so it's going to be a head-butting match. You've got to keep going because they're not going anywhere. So I'm going to give you something. I'm going to make your forehead as hard as a diamond so that you can just keep going. Congrats. Verses 10 and 11. Next he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully to all my words I speak to you. Take them to heart. Go to your people, the exiles. Speak to them. Tell them this is what the Lord God says, whether they listen or refuse to listen. Whether they listen or Well, what happens mainly is they refuse to listen. doesn't matter. Share the truth. Read verses 12 to 15. The reality of his ministry begins to sink in. He's like, I've been called to be a prophet. It's thorns, thistles, scorpions. No one's going to listen. Got to make my head so hard to keep going. So he sits there stunned for seven days. I think a lot of that is praying, please pick someone else. You got the wrong guy. This is not the ministry he was hoping for. That's pretty common. A couple of years back, I went to Reach Australia. It's a group of pastors and elders that come together every year. And people were sharing. And it was a bit honest and a bit raw and... Yeah, there were a couple of churches that were doing great. The vast majority weren't. They were struggling. They didn't have this great team. They just had a faithful elder or two. They didn't have lots of converts. They had very few. The churches were shrinking. Families were leaving. Numbers were dropping off. And it was really hard going. And these faithful guys were just keeping going. And some of them said, this is not how I ever imagined ministry would be. That's the way it often and usually is. You've shared the gospel heaps. Most of the time, they look at you like, who on earth are you to come to me and say that? It's tough. Ezekiel spends his life being the lunatic prophet who builds models, cooks food on dung, warns of judgment, and throughout here, everybody's going, is there a way to silence this fool? And God keeps saying, You just keep going. Success is faithfulness, not spectacular results. Success is faithfulness. Verses 16, 17. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I've made you a watchman over the house of Israel. He says, here's where you're going to be. You're a watchman. What's a watchman? So it's very common for the cities to put a watchman on the wall and they were to warn the city if they saw danger coming. If he warned of the danger, job done. If he falls asleep and doesn't warn, he has failed. Now, understand what's going on here. It's not Nebuchadnezzar coming or Babylon or the world coming. The one he's got to warn about is God. God is coming in judgment and he's coming against his people unless they repent and turn back to him. 
But God is not just a God who comes in judgment. He comes in salvation. And he also says, I am a refuge if they repent. God's not the enemy of his people. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He wants them to hear this and repent. And he says, Ezekiel, that's your job. You're a watchman. But Ezekiel, if you do not do this faithfully, their blood is on your hands. Now, I won't point out the obvious application for us there, but you can think about it. Verses 22 to 26. What gets Ezekiel back on track? What gets him out of this malaise, feeling sorry for himself? He gets another vision of the glory of God, and God says, I'm with you, go. And God says, here's what it's going to be like for you. Next seven and a half years, you're mute. You can't say anything. The only time you can say anything is if I give you a message of judgment and salvation. Rest of the time, you're mute. He's going to be shunned from society. He's going to be acting out God's message. And all of this is just to emphasize God is serious. But now look down at verse 27. When I speak with you, I'll open your mouth and you'll say to them, this is what the Lord God says. Let the one who listens, listen. Let the one who refuses, refuse for they're a rebellious house. I know my people. You get out there and see who listens. It's not on you whether they listen or close their ears. It is on you whether you're a watchman and you are faithful to tell them. That's us. We got the gospel. We got the only good news that can save. And if you believe it, you will be faithful. It is hard. Most of them are going to reject. Most of them are going to think you're nuts. But God has his people. And the lightning that struck you, it strikes again and again. His church continues to grow. The nations are being reached. And it is his word and his gospel that is doing it. We're given that task. And yeah, we go out there and they're going to say, that is so weird. And we should say, you know, it seemed weird to me once too, but let me tell you what kind of weird it is. It is the only way to live. It changes everything. And it does put you on the right side of history and eternity. So keep sharing the gospel. The gospel is humanity's only hope. He does it through his people. He does it through his churches. He never says it's easy, but he says, I will be with you till the end. There is nothing else worth spending your life for. And yes, it is a dark world out there, and it always has been, but God has the same plan. Same one he gave to Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord, here's my plan, here's my word, go out there and tell them. They've been trying to snuff out the word since Eden, They cannot do it because the lamb wins. And those in the lamb win. I love the end of the story. Revelation 21, 23, 24. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. Finally, there will be no darkness. The light and the truth will fill the land and the lamb wins. You want to be on his side in that day 
And you want to take as many as you can with you. So let's join Ezekiel and every faithful one doing what we can to share this truth. We take our light, we shine it in the darkness and yeah, most of the time they're going to laugh and they're going to call us crazy. But every now and then the gospel will penetrate a heart, someone will turn to the Lord and boy is that a time of rejoicing. Why don't we pray together? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have your plan laid out for us and we thank you that you have asked us to be faithful, to join you in that. May we do that. May this church continue to do it and may each one here take seriously the task of going forth and making disciples of the nations until the Lord returns. In his name we pray. Amen.